3,300 years ago, God brought the people of Israel out of slavery at the base of a mountain in the Sinai Peninsula and under a heavenly tent of clouds. God and the people of Israel made a covenant to one another that God would always belong to Israel and Israel would always belong to God. Over the next 600 years, God would keep his side of the promise, but Israel would forget hers, seeking the aid of anyone but God and merely giving God lip service. Until finally, Israel disappeared. But throughout its decline, God sent messenger after messenger, sent messages through specific people, prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Amos and Isaiah, to try to draw Israel back to God. And in the prophet Hosea, God painted painted a very clear metaphor for Israel. Hosea married Gomer, who was unfaithful to him. But Hosea stayed true to her, just as God had remained true to an unfaithful Israel. Through the life of Hosea, God conveyed some very clear themes to Israel. And one of those themes was, Israel has finally gone too far in its infidelity. Despite all of the rose-carrying prophets that God had sent, Israel and God had reached the end of the road. We belong together And you know that I'm right Why do you play with my heart? Why do you play with my mind? Said we'd be forever
All right. While it may have been the end of the road for the northern kingdom, ultimately it wasn't the end of the road for Israel. God continued to relentlessly pursue his people and continues to do so to this day. Um, Dr. John Perkins was born in Mississippi to a sharecropping family in 1930. At 17, he witnessed the shooting death of his older brother by the town marshal. Promising never to return to the South, Perkins moved to Los Angeles. He started a family and became a Christian, and then in 1960, he heeded God's call to return to Mississippi, the very place he had fled, to start a ministry. In his autobiography, he explains that he realized that it wasn't enough for him to preach the gospel and only care for his congregants' spiritual needs. He needed to care for their physical and emotional needs as well. That meant addressing the institutional injustices of the Jim Crow South. He established housing co-ops and thrift stores. He led voter registration drives. He endured arrest, imprisonment, and a nearly fatal beating by police officers. While he worked for the black community, he also cultivated a compassion for his white brothers and sisters, who were enslaved themselves by this rigid system that oppressed others. Perkins addressed both black and white congregations to garner support for his activities. He faced scrutiny, suspicion, and even threats from those who thought that his social mission had strayed too far from his spiritual one. In the face of resistance from fellow Christians, Perkins explained, I never sever tides, never cut off communication with anyone willing to talk. Love is a giant thing if the person who has the complaint will not break the relationship. Perkins had every reason to abandon his efforts to try to bring local churches on board with his mission. He had every reason to stop sitting down and meeting with pastors across the area, both black and white, pastors who questioned his motives and even his devotion to God, and yet he persisted. Today, part of his legacy is the Christian Community Development Association, the CCDA, which trains Christians of all races across the world to minister to the spiritual, physical, social, and economic needs of entire communities. Love is a giant thing if the person who has the complaint will not break the relationship. What a powerful image of love. Love like this holds on and pursues relationship despite conflict and despite resistance. Love like this holds out for hope and change and redemption. Imagine what would have happened if Hosea, with every reason to do so, had broken the relationship with Gomer. Imagine what would have happened if God had broken the relationship with Israel and with us. In Hosea 6, when Israel is eager to earn back God's favor and certain that he will relent on his judgment if they just make sacrifices to him, he tells Israel, For I desire chesed, not sacrifice, an acknowledgment of God rather than burnt offerings. The word hesed in Hebrew is often translated as mercy, steadfast love, and unending kindness. It's the same word that Moses uses to describe the unfailing love with which God leads the Hebrew people, the people he has redeemed out of Egypt. It's the same word used to describe the generosity of Boaz, who, go, who went beyond, above and beyond his duty as a kinsman redeemer to care for Ruth. And it's the same word spoken by the prophet Micah to the people. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Mercy, steadfast love, unending kindness. Chesed is acted out by those who do the work of redemption, by God himself, by a man of honor like Boaz, and by you and me, God's people. 
It's what Dr. John Perkins described as the very thing that makes love just so giant in the face of obstacles like conflict, the commitment to not break the relationship. While Hosea's call to pursue and redeem Gomer is extreme, the thread of the story is something that many of us can relate to on a smaller scale, that of pursuing a relationship that seems one-sided, of giving of yourself even when it seems like you don't get anything in return, or worse, when it seems like your gift is taken for granted. So why would we be tempted to break up in a relationship? Why would we want to burn bridges with people that we love and care about? It's because of what we see in them. It's because of what they, we see in them when they respond to our overtures with pain, with suffering, with pushing back. When they respond to reaching out, us reaching out to us, they can sometimes respond with pride. Their deeds do not permit them to return to the Lord. A spirit of prostitution is in their hearts. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah also stumbles with them. When we reach out to someone, we sometimes say, I, I don't, they, don't, they sometimes say to us, I don't need you, uh, I got this handled. And when we come to them and offer help again, out of a spirit of chesed, they reply, no, 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 seriously, I got this. They can't see the extent to the tr- of the trouble that they've gotten themselves into because they're smack dab in the middle of it. But from outside, we can. Ephraim mixes with the nations. They've become impure. Ephraim is a flat loaf not turned over. It's half-baked. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. He's growing weaker by the moment. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Time is passing. Time is, in fact, running out, but he's not getting the message. As we try to express the level of trouble that someone's in, their pride can make them defensive. Look, I told you that I'm fine. In fact, who are you to think that you can help me? I see all the problems you got, so don't tell me I'm in trouble. And when they go on the offensive, one of the things that we want to do is cut them loose. Fine, go then. And then with a touch of vindictiveness, send them off. Let's see where you end up without me. But one, most, one of the most frustrating things that someone can do that would tempt us to give up on them, obliviousness. People can be plain clueless about their situation sometimes. For example, the verse that we've been looking at, Hosea 6. It's very damning. And you would figure that if God said that to you, you would take notice, right? These verses are an angry, frustrated God responding to Israel. But what exactly is God responding to? Take a look at the passage immediately preceding this. This is what set God off. Yeah, 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 come on, come on. Uh, we'll, we'll return to the Lord. He's torn us to pieces, but he'll, he'll heal us. Uh, he's injured us, but he'll bind our wounds. And after two third days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll restore us, and then we'll live in his presence. Let's acknowledge the Lord. Yeah, yeah, let's acknowledge the Lord. Press forward to meet him. And as truly as the sun rises, he'll appear. He always does. He'll come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. God's saying a lot of wonderful things about Israel's saying a lot of wonderful things about God, but Israel is totally clueless as to what is actually going on. God's response to them is pure exasperation. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. Therefore, I cut you into pieces with my prophets. I killed you with words of my mouth. I sent people to tell you we have a problem with our relationship. And then my judgments could go forth like the sun, if you listened. For I desire your love, 
your unending love, not your religion. I desire that you would know me, not just do what I've asked of you. Have you ever had a one-way relationship? One of those relationships where you keep giving and giving and giving and they keep taking and taking and taking. They're taking you for granted. And when they do that and they say, you know, nonchalantly, no, I'm not. I'm not taking granted of you. I'm not doing anything like that. And then they point out something minuscule that they did six months ago. And the cycle continues. Well, Israel is doing exactly that. They sense no urgency in its relationship with God and expresses no real commitment to change. It wants cheap grace. It's taking God's chesed for granted. His unending kindness is being taken for granted. Oh, it's no big deal. All we have to do is say, we love you, and you're coming running back to us. And God is saying, no, Israel, you don't get it. I've been sending messages. I've been sending people to tell you that our relationship's in trouble. And you keep patting my head condescendingly and saying, everything's fine. You expect by just saying it, it'll make it so. Well, it's not and I'm going to stop covering you. I'm going to hold you accountable for what you've done. Well, God, I'm just being me. If you loved me, you would support me in whatever I choose to do. Since when? This is a major theme in the book of Hosea. Israel has to be held accountable for its actions. Israel is going to be erased because of love. It's because of God's unending kindness that he will allow Israel to suffer the consequences of its actions. It's for the sake of its descendants, including us, that God will stop this cycle of apostasy, of ingratitude, and of abuse. When I was a kid, I did some stupid stuff. I still do some stupid stuff, but you know, uh, for, for the grace of God, go I. But when I was a kid, I did some really stupid stuff, and my mother would discipline me, and she would say, this is gonna hurt me, more than it'll hurt you. And inside I said, yeah, right. I know better than you. I see the mistakes you make, Mom. You're just as bad as I am. In fact, you're worse. And then one time after she disciplined me, I saw her crying. She tried to hide it from me, but I saw her. And that's when I understood what she meant. For all the times that I did something stupid, something dangerous, something exasperating, she always stayed right there. She would step away to calm down, but she would come back, and then she never gave up on the hope that I would choose the right way, the right path. She knew that she was imperfect, but she held me accountable because she made a promise on the day I was dedicated to God, that despite my pride, despite my disobedience, despite my stubborn inability to see the truth, she would never give up on me. That is a reflection of chesed that we can see in our parents, in our family members, in our friends, and in our teachers. I've been teaching high school for nine years at a small school in East Palo Alto that um, is a college prep school that works with students who have been historically underrepresented in higher education. It is my dream job. It's rewarding, totally exhausting, and it's so much fun. It's a workout for my brain and my vocal cords and my patience. And um, God has expanded me through this role, and he has taught me how to love and to, for, to forgive and to walk alongside people with patience as they um, work through change, both academic and personal change. If I had any doubt about it before, in this role as a teacher, I readily admit that I am not God, and I cannot love people perfectly. On my most exhausting days, I debrief with Darren or another one of my colleagues, and I list very carefully every single complaint I have about my students and my classes in my day. 
They listen patiently, and they remind me that this is the work we do. Learning is a process. Each student we teach is a work in progress, and I am too. They encourage me to not break the relationship, but to move forward in love. In both the worlds of academic learning and social-emotional growth, one thing is clear. Learning is a process. However, some people think teaching and mentoring is as simple as operating an input-output system. Input, I give these directions, I teach this lesson, I dole out this advice. Then something happens, and then output. The students pass these tests and earn these grades, and they make better life choices. If only it were so straightforward. We're not devices or systems, we're people, we're complicated. It's really more like this. Learning is messy. We know through experience as learners ourselves, whether trying to become physically healthier or develop a new skill, or maybe to mature spiritually as Christians, we quickly see that we as humans are not input-output systems. Even if the input is a diet and exercise plan, a how-to manual, or a really good Bible study, we don't change right away. It's not that simple. We learn not just individually, but also collectively as a people, as humanity. We exist along the long arc of redemptive history, from Adam and Eve in the garden through the salvation of the Hebrew people and the formation of Israel, through Jesus' ministry and the expansion of the church, waiting for the fullness of God's kingdom to come again. God is working among us. He's redeeming us and rescuing us from our sin and from ourselves. But perhaps this week more than others, in light of the shooting of nine of our brothers and sisters at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, we cry out, Have we as a people learned nothing? We see the pervasiveness of violence and racism, even the hatred that characterizes the conversation about this event. It seems like, as John Stewart put it, the gaping racial wound in our country will not heal. We still have so far to go. Yet the work of John Perkins and others like him continues to bear fruit, seen even in the response of many of the victim's family members to the suspect at his bond hearing. I can't see. While not excusing the crime, they declared their forgiveness for this man who had committed such evil. We hold on to the hope that God is working. He continues to pursue a relationship with us as a people, and he calls us to do the same with one another. Every step of social change, every brick laid in the construction of God's kingdom comes with difficulty. As people push back against progress with uncertainty, fear, obstinacy, and even violence, But as MLK said, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. The kingdom will not be deterred. Learning is a process. Resistance can be high, regression inevitable. Progress is hard, and yet it's worth pursuing. For those of us in the helping professions, the counselors and therapists, the teachers, the social workers, walking alongside others through change is our job. We must persist even when the output is not what we were expecting. In teaching and mentoring these years, I have learned a few things. One of those is that I've learned to be generous with forgiveness, with hesed. It's an effort I attempt daily, though imperfectly. We may think that people change through stricter rules, through discipline, through calling out. We've seen this approach at school, at work, and even in our churches. But rarely do people change under such demanding circumstances. Change usually happens with forgiveness, with patience, with listening, with asking and answering questions that help us uncover what's happening under the surface. Even as I hold my students accountable, I do my best to forgive their missteps and extend mercy. 
One experiment I tried was just being super generous with forgiving people, even when the offense isn't something that I technically should be forgiving them about because it wasn't committed directly to me. Take, for example, my seventh period class after lunch. They're either hyped up on sugar or they're in a food coma. Students pile into the room. The kid who really does his homework is avoiding eye contact yet again. Two other students are perched on another student's desk trying to get her romantic attention. And another student brought the wrong book, even though they just had a 45-minute lunch, and has to run back to their locker and then run back to class. No one seems to notice that class starts in 10 seconds. It's loud. It's hectic. I'm frustrated. I want to yell at them to settle down and be quiet. I don't say shut up in my classroom and call them out. Don't they know that I've prepared an awesome lesson today and they're here to learn? But before class, I take a deep breath. I recognize their humanity and I silently forgive. It may seem unwarranted, but it helps me to approach them with love. I forgive them for not showing up to my class calm and exactly prepared as I would like them to. I also forgive the chaos that's happening in some of their homes that might prevent them from coming, up, coming to class as prepared as they would like to. And I also forgive the self-imposed chaos that they just started at lunch. And then we all move forward. There's actually an infinite amount of forgiveness that I can dole out. I don't need to be stingy with it, and I don't need to reserve it for a special occasion or just situations in which formal apologies have been given and received. It doesn't cost me anything except to set aside my idea of what progress should look like in favor of what God is doing in an individual's life. Ultimately, the ability to forgive doesn't come from me, but from God himself. In a declaration of radical chesed, loving kindness, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Maybe these profound words apply even to our comparatively small situations in our daily lives that can wear down on us over time. Whether I need greater patience with my class or need to keep working with a student through their personal challenges, I try to remember this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or in other words, you can't expect a person to do what they don't yet know how to do. During the messy process of learning, perhaps being generous with forgiveness and chesed is what actually sparks peoples to change. And second, I've also learned to teach my students how to be generous in forgiving others and themselves. Many of my students don't know how to forgive. They see it as weak. They're used to saving face, to holding grudges, to seeking revenge. They take the sentiment of not giving respect unless you've earned it to the extreme, allowing one small transgression to set off a series of broken relationships and even retaliations, an eye for an eye. Of course, this is not unique to my students. It's true for people of all ages and backgrounds. This lesson of forgiving others for their wrongdoings, whether or not they know or admit them, has been a powerful lesson to pass along to students. Let me tell you about one of my kids. His name is Pablo. He's a graduate of our school. Though he had strong academic skills, his academic performance steadily declined. His list of missing assignments grew longer, and he became increasingly withdrawn from our classes, aside from the occasional angry outburst. By January of his junior year, he stopped waking up for school in the morning and was approaching the maximum number of absences. As his advisor, I dreaded receiving his report card because that meant I had to talk to him and try to figure out why his grades were so low. He refused to open up. Our interactions were strained. He was surly and gave no explanation for his behavior. I became harsh and demanding. No matter how many hours I spent after school chasing him down and trying to get him to do his assignments, no matter how much I told him that he had to change, he resisted. 
Eventually, he admitted that he had given up. I wanted to give up too. But God was doing something. As the weeks wore on, I felt like God was inviting me to move forward, but this time in kindness, to pursue this advisor-student relationship despite the many complaints that I had, to try to practice chesed toward this student despite his resistance, despite his attempt to break the relationship. I usually graded papers at a cafe on the weekend, sometime with friends, so I invited him, required him, to come along with me on a Saturday. We pushed tables together, we cleared out his backpack, we found half-completed assignments and ones that had been ripped, and he got to work. When he started losing steam halfway through the day, we took a break and took a walk outside. There's something about walking that clears the mind and settles the soul. Because for the first time in three years, that I, the three years that I had known him, Pablo started talking. He talked and talked. He told me about his dad, who left the family right after he was born, and who had gained prominence in the community as a drug dealer, even though Pablo himself hadn't seen him in over 10 years. He told me about his rocky relationship with his mom and the fact that he purposefully went to sleep right after school so he would be sleeping when she got home from work, and then he'd wake up in the middle of the night to do his homework and play video games. He admitted that he couldn't stand himself much of the time, and he didn't know why he wouldn't and why he couldn't change. As I walked and listened, I felt God was again inviting me to reflect hesed toward him. I could see clearly the pain and the rejection and the unforgiveness that distorted his sense of self. Suddenly I burst out, you are loved. And I listed all the ways in which I had seen that he is loved. That his mother wakes up at 5 a.m. every day to try to provide for him. That our principal had specifically selected him to come to our school. That teachers were bending over backwards to try to get him to learn and to grow. To his brother who showed concern even though he was constantly pushed away. And Pablo started to sob right there in downtown Mountain View. Tears streaming down his face as he began to recognize all the ways that he was indeed loved. In that moment, Hesed changed him. His progress was slow and uneven. He failed his math class. He didn't do well in many of the others, but that day marked a turning point in his life. He started meeting with our school counselor, which he had resisted for a very long time, and I agreed to pick him up, wake him up even, for school each day. Eventually, he said he wanted to reconcile with his mom. I posed some questions to help him cultivate compassion for her so he could see her in a new light and forgive her for that which she did not know she had done. Over time, he also learned to forgive himself. By the grace of God, he got into college, a small university in Austin, Texas, where he resolved to start anew. But before leaving college, he tracked down his father. He let him know that he forgave him and shared with him that he had graduated high school and would be the second, the second kid in their family to go to college. Though his father was unresponsive, he said that he was glad he had made the effort anyways. In college, he worked through conflicts with his roommates, and he learned to bounce back after a devastatingly low grade. When he came home from breaks, he even slowly taught his mother and his brother how to resolve conflict in healthier ways. Darren and I had the pleasure of visiting him in Austin this past April. After dinner of all the things we could possibly do, Darren suggested that we go to Costco. We did a Costco run because he doesn't have a car at school and loaded up with laundry detergent and frozen chicken. We took him back to his apartment and wished him well. On May 12th, Pablo graduated from college. He paid for his mom to fly out and booked a hotel for her in Austin so they could explore the city he now calls home. Just last week, he started a job at a tech firm right outside of Austin, Texas. 
having recognized the ways in which he is loved and supported, however imperfectly, by others, having chosen the hard path of forgiveness and reconciliation with others and himself, Pablo has grown into a young man who is grounded at peace and finding his way in this world. At the end of Hosea's letter, God in all earnestness says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. God pursues us. He responds to our resistance with hesed, with ever-loving kindness, and he refuses to break the relationship no matter how much we resist. In each person, in the students I teach, in each of us here in the room, despite our resistance, God brings about change. And he invites us to partner with him as he heals our broken systems and our hurting world. Be generous in forgiving and showing chesed, and teach others to do the same themselves, and trust that God is working. Uh, Let us pray. God, you've put so many people in our lives that need chesed, that need to know that they are loved for whatever reason might be. Please help us to recognize it when, they, when we come across them, when they stumble in front of our path, and help us to have hesed for them. Help us to have love, patience, grace for whatever they're going through. Help us to do the same for ourselves in those times when we can't be patient with ourselves, when our expectations are too high for ourselves. Help us to recognize that you love us no matter what that your hesed crosses all bounds, that the end of the road will never come because you will always be there reaching out to us, even in spite of circumstances. Thank you for all you do. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.